Welcome, listeners, to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. My guest on today's podcast is a transgender Latter-day Saint. Welcome to the podcast, Rochelle. Happy to be here and happy that you uh, invited me to be on your on your podcast. I've kind of shared this a little bit. My wife and I, listeners, were in Israel and we walked to a hill and were able to look over the road to Jericho and our tour leaders taught us the parable of the Good Samaritan. And I thought of the context of that time in the world and how the world thought about, or the Jews thought about Samaritans and Christ taught very differently about Samaritans and even called them good Samaritans. And then in that example, you know, exhibited really wonderful moral behavior on what we know well as the parable of the good Samaritan. But I thought of transgender people and um, how the principles that a parable in my feeling apply to transgender people that often exhibit superior moral behavior, but often are um, vilified in our vernacular. So I reached out to Rochelle and said, would you come on the podcast and share your story? And she said, yes. And it's really brave of her to do this. She's going to steer. She's in her fifties. Um, she's going to talk about her journey, this long-term journey with gender dysphoria um, coming out as transgender she identifies as female i use she her pronouns i believe and rochelle is your name and and so i just as a grace honor those pronouns that name it doesn't cost me anything it's part of my baptism covenants and so i see as a wonderful woman doing the best she can and walking this road feeling gender dysphoria Um, but our joint prayer is this is helpful to you if you're trying to learn about transgender latter-day saints if you're the parent, a local leader, if you yourself are working through gender dysphoria and trying to figure out your best path forward, that Rochelle's story will help you. We said a prayer beforehand. Um, as I may have mentioned, Rochelle's in her 50s. She's joining us from Utah County via Zoom. She's going to share her journey with the church. She's been active in the church. She's gone through a divorce. Um, there's probably some pain there around that. She'll share that. She is kind of reconnected and reestablished trust with her local leaders and is engaging in the church as much as she can. And that's a complicated road for transgender Latter-day Saints. Um, so my heart goes out to you. And um, so is that okay for an introduction, Rochelle? Sure. I think that works. So um, I'll just turn it over to you to share your story. Great. Um, so just for your audience to know that you and I have been speaking, you know, prior to the recording, kind of sharing some other details and that I shared some photos with you. And I thought it was appropriate for me to start off with a photo that kind of immortalizes my experience from the beginning when I came into this world. Um, maybe I'll have you describe what you see in the photo and then I'll provide the background. Well, the very first photo I see, uh, I can tell it's a photo that's like 40, 50 years old, and it's a mom with a baby. Correct. And I am the baby. So I think the thing to note, if you look behind my mother up in the window there, do you see a figure? I see something about, I see the word, the photo is a little cropped. So I see an A and I see the word girl. Okay. And do you see a face in the window though? Oh, I do. Okay. That is my mother's mother or my grandmother. Oh, I do see that. Okay. So she is at our house at the time waiting for my mother to come home from the hospital. She's doing the babysitting of the other children, right? So the thing to note about what it says in the window is it says in bold letters, it's not a girl. True. Now I see that. So that's how... <laughs> I came into the world with obviously a grandmother, at least, who was expecting a girl. Okay. And as I have kind of gone through my life, and I only found this out recently, I come from a family of eight children. And I'll go into that in a little more detail. My mother had two children with one man, uh, basically, while well, she was a senior in high school that she met this individual. And then later on, that didn't work out for various reasons and things of that nature. And then my mother met my father and had six other kids, children. I am the second of those six. OK, 
Okay, so I have an older brother, and then I have younger siblings. So um, the thing that I've come to understand just more recently from my mother sharing, and, and just so you know, I was estranged from my mother for almost my entire marriage. Not necessarily my decision, but for various reasons, that's what happened. And so I have had a struggle, um, you know, having a, a reconnection with my mother. But nevertheless, I am connected with my mother. I'm grateful to be connected with my mother. She has taught me a lot through the history that she has now revealed to me that I never do. And one of the things that my mother told me in her journal pages was that she knew when she married not only my father, but when she married the other person on the day of her wedding, she knew she made a mistake. So <laughs> maybe it's best that I didn't know that because bottom line is if she knew she made a mistake, does that mean I'm a mistake? I don't think so. But nevertheless, that's what I've come to understand is that, you know, my mother was in a fragile, emotional state throughout my childhood. And, and she, you know, she was, after she had like me and my older brother, my father was a military contractor. So he met my mother here in Utah. They got married in Las Vegas. And then my father uprooted my mother to New York, took her totally away from her family any friends, any associates, whatever. And she felt totally alone. And again, he worked as a military contractor, so he was often traveling, which left my mother alone with all of her children. Um, and so the only kind of sense of purpose, I guess my mother felt she had was raising babies, having children that gave her purpose as a mother. That's a good purpose, right? But in her journal, my mother also said that she looked forward to her girl babies, right? She obviously had more of a connection to her girl babies, her, her daughters. And so, again, where does that leave me as her son? I never felt that connection to my mother as, as her child. And I'm not here to say that that impacted my life today. I used to think, right, for a long time, I used to think that my history <laughs> kind of contributed to why I am what I am or how I, you know, why I feel what I feel. And so I was happy. And I let you know before our, you know, before we started recording that I recently read your book. And I was happy to read in your book and to find out and discover that basically the church accepts that this is not a choice. And that helps me a lot because I used to feel like I had to justify based upon my past, why I am what I am, why I feel what I feel, right? Because I had a mother with a, who was emotionally fragile. I had a absent father. Um, and so I literally, and I've tried to ask other people this, I said, do you remember your childhood? You know, and various people will tell me different things. I can literally say from like the age of two to the age of eight, I have very little understanding of what happened in my life. <laughs> I have very faint memories, and I'm very proud and happy to say that one of my earliest memories in life was climbing the Statue of Liberty when you could actually do that. <laughs> actually climbing up to the crown, looking out the windows and everything. I have a very distinct memory. Again, this is because my father took our family to New York. And so we were there. And so that was one experience that is distinctly, you know, imprinted in my mind. Another uh, experience that is imprinted in my mind is that we visited the Joseph Smith home. I remember my mother carrying me into the Joseph Smith cabin, seeing the mantle, and I remember distinctly being in the sacred grove at the age of two. For whatever reason, that stuck with me. It has stuck with me today. So I feel that I had a personal witness, even back then, of what had happened there. 
And despite everything else that's happened in my life, I recognize now that the Lord has been with me. And I don't want to get off of that topic, but again, I accept Lord Jesus Christ as my Savior. I want to get that right out there. My life today doesn't change that in any way. If anything, it intensifies my relationship and my faith in the Lord. In addition to my mother's emotional state, my father's absence, I like to say my, my father's absence as a male role model. Um, unfortunately, my father had a dark past. And that dark past eventually led, and I'll just say it, you know, generically, basically, that I grew up with sexual abuse in my home. Now, that sexual abuse was never directed personally at me. Can I say, thank God? I, I don't know. But nevertheless, it was around me. It was... Um, it affected my siblings in ways that they can never fully recover from. And bottom line, that sexual abuse led to the eventual excommunication of my father when I was in sixth grade or 12 years old. And um, I've been told that, you know, I'm not blaming the church or anybody, you know, I just accept things were done differently back then. For whatever reason, it was decided, um, you know, and of course, as my parents divorced, I mean, if nothing else, my mother finally decided after that, <laughs> that she needed to divorce my father. Right. But at the same time, um, it based upon his actions, um, it was, you know, he was excommunicated. And so then you're like, okay, so what happens to me, right? You would think after all of that, that my mother would want to protect me as her child. Well, that didn't happen. For various reasons, for money reasons, financial reasons, whatever, my mother decided that I had to go live with my father. So in the, basically, the events of my parents getting divorced, me, I was uprooted from all of my friends. Again, this is sixth grade. As I'm going into middle school, I have established friends, associations. Uh, I'm going into the young, young men and, you know, into the youth programs and everything. All of a sudden, that was all taken away from me. And, and at the time, we were living in Sandy, Utah. And then my father, because he worked in West Valley, he moved to West Valley. So that uprooted me totally across the valley, basically, from anything and everything that I knew, I felt completely alone. And even though I had my older brother with me, um, that, that was, there were reasons, I'll just say there were reasons why my brother had to go live with my father. Now, why did I have to go live with my father? Well, my mother thought that I needed to be with my brother. That's all she could tell me. And I'll, I'll just accept that that's what, that was her reason. Okay. My situation while living with my father, I lived in a, a bedroom. We each, there was a three-bedroom home with no basement. The bedroom I lived in had no carpet with tack strips still around the edges. It had flowered wallpaper on the walls, very old, tattered, flowered wallpaper. And the roof had that old, you know, very pointy, jaggedy type, um, plaster <laughs> looked like teeth and bags, and and within that bedroom was basically a bed, uh, a desk, um, and a chair. So for all intents and purposes, I felt like I was living in a prison. It was not homely at all, and now I was without my younger siblings. So again, I felt very completely alone, and. Again, because of the fact that my father was excommunicated, I felt that I carried that scar. 
or that badge, just like he did. And I felt like people were looking at me and saying, well, if your father's as communicated, you know, do we need to be cautious of you? And, you know, systematically, um, relationships with even extended family members, like cousins, aunts, uncles kind of all, you know, went away. So again, the loneliness continued in my life. <sighs> Nevertheless, I, I felt like I was a happy child <laughs> and, and I've shared a couple pictures with you. And so again, even though I don't have distinct memories in my head, I look at those pictures and it helps me to know that for some reason, somehow the Lord was with me and helping me to see the joy in life. Right. That's what I look at with those photos. You know, and, and I know your, your audience can't see those, but I just want them to understand that looking at those photos for me helped me to see that I was okay, right? That I was being carried through this very traumatic uh, state as a child that I was going through. Um, so basically, I stayed in that environment with my father until I turned 16. I was seeing through all of that, how it was affecting my older brother. He was two years older than I was. And I just decided something was compelling me to say, I cannot stay here. This is not going to be good for my well-being to stay here. And, you know, at that time we were doing routine visits to my mother and seeing my other siblings on the weekends and things like that. And I just remember one time going there, I think it was in the summer. So I was there for you know a longer period of time, a few more days and stuff like that. And I just distinctly remember asking and pleading with my mother, can I please come live with you? You know, and again, I'm turning 16, looking forward to being able to get a driver's license, hopefully go to work. And you have to understand the situation with my mother and my siblings wasn't any better. They were also living in a three-bedroom house, no basement. So you had my mother in her room. You had my basically three sisters in one bedroom and my brother in another, my younger brother. There was no room for me. Nevertheless, I'm pleading with my mother to let me come stay with her and that I would not, you know, add any burden to her. And she finally, you know, allowed me to do that. So I slept on a fold-out couch in the front room, shared a closet with my brother. And that was my life for the next two years, right? Um, I got a job working. I miss some people in Utah, but, you know, would probably remember the name Chi-Chi's. Uh, used to be a Mexican restaurant. That was my first job as a busboy. And I thoroughly loved that job because it allowed me to be in an environment totally opposite from my home, <laughs> where you could be around people who are out celebrating, enjoying food, great food, and all this type of stuff. And it was busy, right? So Chi-Chi's, even on a weeknight, you would have a typical one-hour wait. And so it was busy. So you had to clear tables quickly and stuff like that. So it was just high energy, you know, and, and servers loved that, you know, I could turn their tables quickly and stuff. So as a young child, even in that first job that I held as a bus person, I learned the value of being, you know, um, valuable, Right. Um, later, I, I describe it as being irreplaceable, right? In my positions, whatever position I am, I'd learn to become irreplaceable, right? <laughs> but I learned the value of hard work, right? To, to work hard. And, you know, I, I hate to say it, but I busted my butt. <laughs> so anyway, so I went and lived with my mother at 16, took that job. And again, that job provided, you know, me the means basically to buy my own car, Right. So at 16, I was able to buy a car, which gave me additional freedom. Right. Um, nevertheless, because of everything that was happening around me and everything and having, you know, feeling the obligation to work, I really didn't have a social life within school. I was essentially a loner. I mean, I, I felt like I could relate to other people and talk to other people and stuff like that, but I didn't hang out with people after school. I didn't go to any clubs. I didn't go to any proms. I didn't go to any sporting events. That was not my life in high school. My, my life during high school was working and going home, doing my homework, going to bed, rinse and repeat. That was my life. Um, um, so 
again, when I was living with my mother, now the situation was different, right? Before I was living with my father and my brother. Now I'm living in my mother's home with three younger siblings, younger girls, you know, my, my sisters. And at the same time, I'm entering into my teenager years, my puberty, if you want to call it, right? So that introduced all sorts of feelings, again, that I didn't really fully understand. And so some people might be embarrassed, you know, this. And, and I'll just basically say, I dabbled. <laughs> I experimented, right? I had access to things that helped me to explore the feelings that I'd always held. And I'll just mention really quickly, the first indication to me that I was different was, and some people will recognize this, some people will not, but there was a show on TV called Buck Rogers. And there was a character in there called Colonel Wilma Deering. And people can look that up. They can Google it, whatever. When I saw that woman, I looked at her not as I'm attracted to her. It was like, I want to be her. Okay, so that, that was probably about nine or 10 years old. I think that was the most distinct, you know, thing in my life that helped me to understand something was different. I just didn't understand it at the time. And as I got older, again, I dabbled, I experimented, had access to things that allowed me to, you know, kind of experiment with different feelings that I was feeling at that time and stuff like that. And I, and I, I liked it. I liked the feeling that I had as a result of that. Um, Nevertheless, I'm growing up with this compulsion. Well, am I going to serve a mission? Right. And I'll just tell you, nobody, nobody told me to serve a mission. There was nobody around me, youth leaders, bishops or anything like that. I mean, this was all during the time I lived with my father. I don't have any type of strong uh, relationships with youth leaders or priesthood leaders or anything. I mean, I really didn't do much in scouts and everything like that. So really, the decision to serve a mission was entirely my own. Nobody was encouraging me or prompting me either way. Yet, because of my mother's situation, I know the ward helped me to go on a mission. I accept that. I appreciate that. I served my mission in the Philippines. And uh, interestingly enough, my first exposure to what I would call transgender individuals was in the Philippines on my mission. Uh, You would walk around and you would see these beauty contests and they would have these attractive women. And then somebody would whisper to me, they're not women, they're transgenders. And I was like, are you freaking kidding me? I mean, I had no clue. This was my first kind of, you know, exposure. I understand. I I did not grow up at the age of the Internet. I did not have access to the Internet. So I didn't know. And and I'd heard the term cross-dresser, right? So for a long time, I thought I was a cross-dresser, right? But nevertheless, I just want to kind of say I was pursuing my mission and then I went down the path of, you know, being a good Latter-day Saint, priesthood holder, whatever you want to call it. I served my mission honorably. I came home and my desire was to get married. So I got I found my wife. The circumstances around that kind of seemed, you know, like it was meant to be. <laughs> I'll just say it seemed like it was meant to be. And I loved my wife. You know, my ex-wife, my OEC or my once eternal companion, as I like to call her now. <laughs> um, and I'll just say I was married for 25 years. I have three children. They're all grown up now. And I can honestly say that chapter of my life, being a father, being a husband, I accepted it wholeheartedly. Being a priesthood holder, I was an elder in the elders quorum. I was eventually made a high priest. I mean, I am an older person. I mean, like you mentioned, I'm in my 50s, but I served in the high priest group leadership. That might come as a surprise to people because I don't think I look that old. <laughs> But I know things have changed there, too. But anyway, I've served in priesthood calling. I was a, I was an executive secretary for my bishop <laughs> for probably two or three years. So I've been there, done that, right? So I was married for 25 years, happily, accepted all the responsibilities and roles of that, loved being a parent, loved my children. But at some point in time, some things happened. Uh, I'll just say an atrocious thing happened to one of my children. Uh, something so atrocious that it it literally broke our family. It was just so bad. And, and this was so atrocious that we had to go to the police and report it to the police. It was that bad. But I can't get into more detail because it's not my story to tell. But that happened in 2019. Um, 
And as a result of that, again, we just struggled as a family and, and, and it was becoming harder and harder by the day. And then, you know, in, I guess, April, 2020, I was unemployed. I, I became unemployed and I was unemployed for six months. And if you understand the timeline there, that's just about the time frame uh, that COVID came into play. So on top of everything that we were dealing with, with what happened to my son, knowing that he had suffered basically in silence and fear for 10 years, couldn't tell this to anybody, it just breaks your heart as a parent. But on top of that, the unemployment, the COVID situation, all that just, there were just events and I, I just can't get into them here, but there were events that basically helped me to see that maybe maybe there was more to um, the situation with the struggle that I had been feeling throughout my entire marriage, that maybe my marriage wasn't built on love. It was, there was love in my heart. I know there was love in my heart, but I don't know that it was necessarily reciprocated. So again, I kind of put these whole feelings of gender dysphoria, transgenderism and everything like that on a shelf. I accepted my responsibilities. But ultimately, our marriage failed. And as a result of that, I found myself literally sitting in a hotel by myself for six weeks alone. Nobody to turn to. I couldn't go to anybody in my ward because of things that had happened. I couldn't trust anybody in my ward. I, I wasn't even allowed to go into my ward. Um, basically, it came to the point where I felt unsafe in my own home. I voluntarily walked out of my home with four police officers in the front room. <laughs> and I said, can I leave? And they said, sure. I, I voluntarily left, grabbed some stuff that I thought I needed, and I never went back. That's what happened. Later, I found out basically that my OEC, within a week, was already talking to a lawyer about divorce. And three weeks later, I was served with divorce papers. So that's the thing I want people to understand is that my current life today, the ultimate realization of who I am, the feelings that I had, only came to me after the unraveling of my marriage. It wasn't a reason for the unraveling of my marriage. But in that six weeks when I was in that hotel, I want you to know that I felt the spirit with me, not initially, but eventually, helped me to realize that my life wasn't over yet, even though I kind of accepted that I was going to be alone for the rest of my life. I still had purpose. I could still help other people. But it was, it was only then when I knew my marriage was over everything, I could have either just chose to be a sad, lonely person, or I could choose to be happy. I chose to be happy. And it was only then that I went back through my whole life, my whole experience. And I said, is there something to this? What does it mean that these feelings that I've had? And so again, even despite everything that happened in my family, I fully accept now the feelings that I have have always been with me. And I no longer have shame or guilt over these feelings because I understand what they mean. And I know that my Lord and Savior accepts me regardless. And that gives me the faith and the strength, the courage, the conviction to go forward. And so, you know, basically, two, three weeks into that experience at the hotel, I fully embraced it. <laughs> I went out, I spent $1,000 on clothes, I spent $1,000 on a wig. I fully embraced it because, again, I had nothing else holding me back at that point. And I just fully embraced it. And I, I feel like I'm the happiest I've ever been because I embrace what I feel is my true authentic self. I have people in my life today who recognize me from the past and say, you really haven't changed in a lot of ways, <laughs> but yet you have. Right. And that's that's, a you know, that helps me because it just helps me to know that the, the nature of my personality in certain circles is the same. I'm the same person. I just have a different name now. I wear different clothes and everything like that. But I'm happy. 
And that's the thing I want people to understand is if you fully embrace this, I'm not, and, and again, I'm just, I'm not endorsing. I'm not trying to groom anybody. I'm just saying, if you have feelings, you know, learn to go within yourself to understand these feelings and what they are. And I, I mentioned to you before that I have been going to North Star. I highly encourage anybody who has any type of these type of feelings with it, whether it's same-sex attraction or gender dysphoria, you'll find uh, a safe space there. And it will help you through whatever journey yours. And, and the thing I will tell you is that this life, as I've come to understand it, is a solo journey. We are all on a solo journey. And it is all about our relationships and our associations that either propel us or hamper us from reaching those goals. One of the things that they mentioned at North Star, um, Sister Abuerto, I guess, from the General Release Society Presidency, was one of the keynote speakers. She talked about intimacy. Intimacy with the Lord, I mean, seeking an intimacy with the Lord. I really connected to that, right? I mean, the part of this life, we're supposed to be intimate, seek an intimate relationship with our Lord. And I really took, by the way, when President Nelson told us to seek a personal relationship, you know, personal revelation, whatever, with the Lord, I really took that to heart. And I feel like I have really kind of changed my personal understanding of God, the nature of the Godhead, lots of things, right? And I just wanted to mention that <clears throat> um, we put so much pressure on ourselves in this life. This is a mortal life after all, right? We had this whole period of pre-existence. We have this little blip of mortality. <laughs> and then we have our eternal life of going beyond this. Yet we put so much pressure on the time that we're here. I just encourage people. Don't allow yourself to get depressed, guilty, all this type of stuff, because we know the fact that we're here is the Savior has prepared the way for us to return home to our Heavenly Father. So whatever happens in this life, it's, and by the way, one of the scriptures that I had on my scripture plaque when I went on my mission was DNC 122.7, right? When Joseph Smith is in the, in the jail and Lord tells him, all these experiences shall be for your good, even if the jaws of hell are gaping open at thee, they'll all be for your good, right? I wholly accept that. Now, little did I know how challenging my life might be. And I'm not saying my life is any challenging than any, anybody else, but I gladly accept it. I embrace it because I know it makes me a stronger person. And all I will say is basically that um, as I've gone through this experience, learning to you know, regain trust in my priesthood leaders, that they love me, they care for me. I have found, as I describe them, angels that live amongst us. There, are, I have made true friendships that I never had in my prior, you know, life, and I value those relationships and friendships that I have. Talk about what your priest, priesthood leaders are doing that creates this trust you have in them. Well, bottom line is they they listen to me, you know. I mean, when I first, when I first got divorced, basically, I basically was living in an apartment by myself in Salt Lake County. So my records were in a ward, but for that entire year, nobody ever reached out to me. So I basically, you know, and this was again with COVID, right? So it was easy for us to just stay home and watch <laughs> sacrament of Zoom. So I didn't feel compelled to go to church. And, and so nobody really knew that I was going through this, right? But I finally just decided when I moved back to in Utah County, I just walked to the nearest church <laughs> and I just showed up. You know, I figure nobody can turn me away if I'm just a visitor. Right. <laughs> so but ultimately I have you know opened up and I scheduled a time with my stake president because I felt like I needed to go visit my stake president first. Right. Well, he invited the bishop, too. So I basically had a discussion with my bishop and stake president. And I just felt heard and I felt loved. Now, where it goes from there, I don't know, because I understand it's a hard journey for people like me, um, restrictions and everything like that. One of the struggles I'm dealing with right now is my record. You know, even though I have a preferred name on there now that I appreciate, there's certain elements of that record that make me, you know, not want to share it. So it's otherwise private. I'm, I'm hoping that I can address those. I don't know what the policy is. I'll have to continue to talk with my priesthood leaders, but it doesn't seem right to me that I have to have this 
you know, broadcast in terms of my record for anybody who can see it, my, then the state of my, my nature, whatever, you know, that type of thing. Um, you know, I'll just mention too, that prior to all of this, while I was buried and everything like that, I served in the temple. I served in the Provo temple for five years as a ordinance worker. Uh, when they opened the Payson temple, I worked in the Payson temple for four years as an ordinance worker. I loved working in the temple. The fact that I can't go to the temple now really hurts. And I don't fully understand it. And I don't know that the brethren I fully understand it. They just don't have the answers right today. So I accept what it is today. Do I hope maybe that will change in the future? I don't know. But I don't know. It just seems to me like I should still be able to have that opportunity, but I'll allow those things to get worked out. Bottom line is I'm happy that I can go to church, go to the sacrament meeting, uh, partake of the sacrament. I do attend Relief Society. Um, I feel welcome there. Uh, again, I've met some great women um, who have supported me in ways that I could have never imagined. Uh, I feel so blessed to have these women in my life. What do they do to help you feel supported? And um, well, I went I'm, to glad release, I'm glad you're able to go to Relief Society. I went to a Relief Society activity one night. I'm just standing up against the wall and uh, a lady walks up to me. A sister walks up to me and says, you come sit by me. <laughs> I'm like, okay. <laughs> and then as we're sitting there chatting and everything, she basically looks over at me and she says, I have a grandchild like you. How did that make you feel for her to say that? That she understood me and she wanted to love me, right? As the Savior would love me, just as she loves her grandchild. And uh, I'll just tell you that relationship I have with that, that sister is amazing. I mean, it's tantamount to <laughs> replacing my own mother. And I, I know that that's hurtful to say to my mother, but I never experienced that from any other person. The love. Um, just the acceptance and the love of another person like that, the Christ-like love, the, the thing that we all aim for, right? And I, I guess that's just what I want people to understand is, at least I know in my heart, I can't speak for everybody, but I feel like I know a lot of transgender individuals. And being transgender is more about how you feel about yourself. Um, I'll just say your sexual attraction or your sexual inclination is really not even a part of the equation. And so being transgender, even though it's a big buzzword right now, I feel very safe in saying transgenders are not the ones to fear because in most cases, we're just trying to see, find peace and happiness in our lives and we love ourselves and we love others, right? And that's all we've ever been told. Um, as followers of Christ, just love your neighbor and, and as thyself. And I just want people to know me personally, that because I'm here emulating everything that I feel is good and great about women, I feel all those things, the nurturing, right? You know, I love children, but then again, I feel like I can't approach children because of the concerns and it hurts me. It hurts me that people feel just because of a decision that I've made or a choice that I've made that somehow I'm a threat. I would never harm a child. I have children of my own. Bottom line is, I know that in the end, all will be made right. And in the end, the Lord will decide my fate. But I feel he's already told me that all is well. And that I can live in peace. In my current state, I'm in another chapter of my life. Yes, I was a father. Yes, I was a husband. Yes, I held the priesthood. 
but I don't necessarily accept that that has to be my whole life. And I'm not here to challenge anything doctrinally. Certain things have been revealed to me that give me peace about the nature of God. You know, we talk about the mysteries of God. I feel the Lord has revealed certain things to me to help me to understand that it's really not about how we present ourselves in this life, because all the Lord looketh upon is the heart, not this vessel. We know God can destroy this vessel like that and re, you know, reframe it. You know, I, I understand certain things about Adam and Eve that I didn't understand before. And I understand things about God in terms of, you know, what happens in the womb? And again, I'm not trying to be controversial here, but we know there are many instances where things go wrong in the womb, whether it's birth defects, whether it's a child born with not definitive genitalia. Those things happen. I don't think those are intended to happen. I think they happen as a matter of biology and genetics and other things. I don't feel that... God lets those things happen. In other words, I don't feel God's part of that process. As long as there's a viable vessel there, he'll put a spirit in there. And so in certain circles, you know, and again, I'm not here to be controversial or anything, but I don't necessarily accept that our souls, our inner being, whatever you want to call it, are inherently or eternally male or female. And I know that's going to be hard to come across. Again, this is just a personal understanding that I've come to. But yes, did God create man and woman? Yes, because it served the function of, you know, mortality. Does that serve the function of eternity? I don't know. And again, that could be a mystery that nobody will understand until we get there. But certain things about that understanding helps give me peace, knowing that a child born with Down syndrome or something like that. That wasn't intended to happen to that child. It happened just as a nature of genetics and biology and things like that, that nature. And to me, that's what explains what happens where somebody doesn't feel right in the right body. So should we trust the genitalia that that person has or should we trust what's in their heart? You know, what their mind is telling them in their heart. You know, we know that. There are times when parents, if they have a child that's not born with, you know, determined genitalia, they have to make a decision on behalf of that child. And they do that with a doctor. So we know that in that case, they decide what they feel is best for that child. Now, did they make the right decision? I don't know. But at some point, maybe that child decides that it wasn't the right decision for them. So who, who, do, we, who do we honor? Do we honor the original decision by the parents and the doctors or do we honor the decision of the individual, right? To represent themselves in the way that they feel most comfortable. And that to me is how I come to an understanding that somehow things happen, right? Where people just don't feel that they're born in the right body. But I know that the feelings are real because I have experienced them myself. And I've talked with many other people, whether it's transgenders non-binaries, uh, people with same-sex attraction. I think what most people are attracted to are Christ-like attributes, right? They see a Christ-like attribute, whether it's another man or another woman, you know, and again, this might be controversial, but, you know, we're told sexual intimacy is for one purpose and one purpose only, to have children, to bear children. So I've accepted essentially that I'm celibate. I'm not seeking a relationship. And for all intents and purposes, I'm, I, I'm accepting that I'm alone. That's, does that mean I don't value relationships with other human beings and other children of God? No. I, I would love that. I would embrace that. Am I seeking sexual attraction or sexual you know, relationship with someone? Not really. And so I'm not here to tell anybody how to live their lives. But to me, the only reason that you go down a path of, you know, sexual intimacy is for the purpose of having children. And if you're going to have that decision in your heart, it's with the intention to serve those children. But anyway, I, 
I just want people to know, and I guess I just want to let those who may be out there questioning certain things about themselves, that I think the most important thing for you to understand is that you're loved by your Savior. He accepts you regardless. He has done what he needs to do to provide us the pathway home. And whatever happens between the time we're born on this earth to the time we leave this earth, again, it will be for our experience. It will be for our good. Anything can be corrected. All will be corrected. That's why that's what I accept. But ultimately, while we're here, we're told that we're supposed to be happy. We're supposed to be joyful. So if you feel for any reason in your life that you're not experiencing joy and that you're suffering depression, guilt, shame, Try to understand how to get through that because know that God doesn't want you to be in that state. God wants you to be happy. And if you feel like you're struggling, find people that you can trust. And I'm not saying, you know, avoid your parents, avoid priesthood leaders, you know, find people you can trust. And obviously today they have resources online and stuff like that, again, that I didn't have. But bottom line is, what the feelings that you have in your heart, you shouldn't necessarily be ashamed of them. You need to understand them and you might need help to understand them. And I'm not here to tell you either way how to live your life, but this is your own journey. I've accepted that. This life is my own personal journey to find my savior, to be, you know, to be returned to my heavenly father. And in, in a sense, we've already been guaranteed that we just have to allow it to see itself through. So I don't know if that's a good part part to kind of finalize on things, if there's any questions that you have. Well, um, this is just a really good podcast, Rochelle, and you're really brave. I want to read um, a quote from Elder Rasband on the church's website. It, it's on a section of the church's official website about transgender people. And the question is, how can I support someone who identifies as transgender and Elder Rasband taught that people who experience transgender feelings, quote, need to be encircled in the arms of their Savior, know they are loved. So often the Lord calls on us. He expects us to be his welcoming, loving arms. We need to encourage their friends to do the same. Um, he, the church's website goes on um, to talk about talking about feelings of gender incongruence can be difficult and confusing. Your loved one may not know how to talk to you about it. You may feel sometimes inadequate, although you may not always know how to respond to the struggles someone else's faces. You will not reach regret reaching out with love and understanding. Um, so the church's website and supporting others is very consistent with what you're inviting us to do, Rochelle. Nowhere on here does it say that this is just all made up or this is Satan confusing his children or that you're, and I'm sorry to use this language, you're sexual perverts. And this is all about grooming children. There is bad behavior at times with trans people. There's bad behavior with cis people that just pin it on trans people is not fair. And so uh, you get really emotional when you talk about being compared to a sexual pervert who is trans because you want to harm children. you before we started to record, you were in tears talking about that, and you were really emotional. So, listeners, um, the church's website doesn't talk like that. Um, sometimes in society and politics, we talk like that, but the church is not talking like that. The church is talking like that sister talked to you in Release Society and how much it meant to you um, and what your local leaders are doing to try to understand and support. And I think you make a good point. Or, General leaders have to write policy for the whole church. They have stewardship responsibility for the whole church. But at the local level, we can just do what Elder Rasband is inviting us to do here and just love and support. We're not called to judge. We're just called to love and support. And yeah, you know, it's I compare this to, you know, when I talk about this, and some of you regular listeners know this because this is what someone talked to me about it. They talked about comparing it to car sickness. And when we all of us can, I think, and identify with being car sick, and we want to get uncar sick. We want to do everything we can. So, long-term de gender dysphoria that Rochelle is feeling 
you want to do stuff to get out of the car. And so you transition and some of that's okay with church teaching. Some isn't you check out the handbook online for that. But that's the best way I've learned to describe it as somebody who feels none of these feelings. Uh, Even though I don't feel it, I want to honor that Rochelle feels it and she feels better when she transitions um, using a new name and pronouns that reflect how she feels about herself. So these podcasts, sometimes if you're listening for the first time, it's uncomfortable. Um, I've learned to sit with that feeling of uncomfortableness and think, am I learning things for the first time I need to learn about a group of people um, that I've never really listened to before? I've maybe heard them described to me, but to really listen to somebody in that group and feel their heart and their goodness and the complexity of the road they're walking Now, my earlier self, and I hope this isn't triggering, Rochelle, would say, well, this is all just because you had a traumatic childhood or you had difficult parenting situations. You would be cisgender if all this didn't happen. And um, I hope that's not triggering for you. I don't believe that. Um, there's Nor lots. There's lots of <laughs> maybe um, I did at one time, but I don't accept that any longer. So there's lots of people that have really traumatic childhoods, more so even than Rochelle, and are still cis gender. So sometimes we want to figure out a backstory here. Um, oh, maybe I do that still, where I'm hearing some of the complexities of your life and thinking, well, this is just a. I hope this isn't triggering. It's it's just what some people like myself might have thought at one time that this, if you didn't have all this experience in your life, you'd be cis and we wouldn't be having this podcast. If people feel that way, what would you say to them? Is it okay? Is that triggering to talk? I'm sure you've heard that before, but what would you say to those people? Well, and this doesn't just, you know, this isn't just limited to those in LGBTQ community, but basically we're told to mourn with those that mourn, right? Um, seek to know the individual, just like the Savior would seek to know us individually, right? Don't draw broad brush conclusions on an individual just based upon an outward appearance or an outward choice that you see that they have made. Seek to understand, just like I've shared my personal story, be willing to be vulnerable with others, right? In your story and allow them to be vulnerable with you. That's when our spirits can connect, right? That's when we can feel the spirit within them. I mean, I'm, I'm constantly just being reminded that we are all children of God, right? We don't just have our children, our immediate family. We are all of the family of God, right? And so we shouldn't reach out less to somebody because they're not our immediate neighbor. You know, in other words, look at people out in public, on on buses, trains, whatever, and just try to open up a conversation, right? And be kind and show genuine interest and be, you know, be loving just as we're all told to do. But, you know, be willing to, you know, you know, genuinely, you know, sit down with a person and seek to know them. Don't just... say hi from a distance and never talk to them again, because again, you, I mean, that's, I feel that, I mean, and it's unfortunate in my ward, even though I feel accepted, there are those that, you know, all I can ever expect from them is a hello. And I don't feel like others will ever seek to know me any, any further than that. And that's unfortunate because I like to share my story, not because, you know, <laughs> I like to talk about myself, but I feel I have, a story that people can learn from and will touch their hearts. Um, I love that. And I'm reading as you're sharing words from the church's website about supporting transgender Latter-day Saints. And this is a question under supporting this website listeners is divided into two understanding and supporting under the supporting. How do I help someone feel loved, valued and needed? So this is for all of us that are cis wanting to support somebody like you that wants to participate in the church as best you can. Um, Sister Bingham shared one of the most significant ways we can develop and demonstrate love for our neighbors is through being generous in our thoughts and words. Words have surprising power both to build up and tear down. We can all probably remember negative words that brought us low. In other words, spoken with love that made our spirits soar. Choosing 
to say only things which is positive about and to others lifts and strengthens those around us and helps us others follow the Savior's way. So once again, the church is not using this vitriol rhetoric that's um, around in society around trans people. And I felt that. I just want to say I have felt that. Um, here's a question. Do I belong as a member of the church? So this is the church talking directly to transgender Latter-day Saints. The first word here is yes. Church members need you and want you. If you identify yourself as transgender, we know you face complex challenges. You and your family and friends are just as deserving as Christ-like love as any of God's children should be treated with sensitivity, kindness, and compassion. So, you know, the church is inviting us to do what you're inviting us to do, Rochelle, and it's complex. We all know it's complex and we get uncomfortable sometimes in this space. I've listened to lots of trans people and sometimes I get uncomfortable, but sometimes that's just part of growth that I need to make is to fully support people that are different than me and recognize the differences are a good thing. Like it talks, Paul talks about Corinthians 12, all parts of the body of Christ are needed. We can't look on one part of the body in Christ and say it's more worthy and less worthy. And I think it's part of the beautiful symphony of differences that then have the ability. Um, here's a question. I'm reading this. Um, Anyway, so I won't read all that. You, I'll link to that in the show notes. Um, but I just, I want you to kind of have the last words here, but I just want to say I'm grateful for you being alive. I'm grateful for you sharing your story. Um, I'm grateful that you want to continue to engage in the church. I recognize several times you've borne testimony of your love of the church, your love of the temple, your love of your mission in the Philippines, your desire to always do the right thing. You've been navigating really complex family issues and your own gender dysphoria, which I would believe are two different things. Um, and because of this, this phase of life you're in, I think I'm not a therapist listeners, but it sounds like you've been able for the first time to sort of address your gender dysphoria um, and figure out that chapter of your life. And I think You've got a great life ahead of you, Rochelle. Um, everybody, her name is spelled R-I-C-H-E-L-L-E. So uh, it doesn't, it's not an O or an E, it's R-I, Rochelle. Or L, I think your friends call you L. Yeah. Um, anything I've said that's uncomfortable or just, or, because I want well, you to I'll... make sure I'm not over-talking or changing your story on your own podcast. And I'd also love you just to share any more thoughts that come to your mind. Um, I will just mention that uh, I have really felt a connection to Elder Soares and his talks that sure. he's given in the last couple of conferences. And I recently read his book called Compassion. Um, it's a short read. <laughs> if you pick it up, uh, one of the things that he relays in his book is about Peter meeting a eunuch on the side of the road. And I would just encourage people to study eunuchs as they exist in the Bible. In some ways, I consider myself to be a modern-day eunuch. And there are specific scriptural references in the Bible that refer to eunuchs and how they are considered favored amongst, you know, to the Lord, um, and that they will have a special place. And uh, I draw kind of a similar parallel to that. You know, again, I consider myself to be celibate um, kind of by choice. I mean, I'm probably a little unique in the sense that, you know, I don't want to be too personal, but I have made basically decisions and I've taken actions in my life that are unreversible. That's the state of my transition. I'll just leave it at that. So there, at this point, there's no going back for me. And not that I would even consider it or endorse it or anything of that nature. I have fully embraced, you know, the core of the feelings that are within me. And I, uh, and I feel truly that the Lord accepts me and my choice and wants me to be happy in my life. And again, 
all will be corrected. We don't even have an understanding or a glimpse of an understanding about what our life will be in the next, you know, beyond this life. So whatever you feel like you're struggling with, you know, funk, if you want to call it, just know that you can change your life. You can change your circumstances. Um, To me, associations and relationships in this life are supposed to be sustaining. And if for any reason you feel that you're in an association or a relationship with another person that is not sustaining, I think you owe it to yourself to not allow yourself to continue to be, you know, less than what you feel you should be like being hampered, like handcuffed or that type of thing. Right. And I feel like a lot of people do that because they're living in various stages of guilt and shame. And there's no reason for that. We're all here to live our lives, live it the way that you feel you have to. In the end, all will be made right. We, we know that we accept that as core doctrine. You know, if you make a mistake, you know, all will be corrected. All will be made right. So there's no reason to grieve over it. That's all I could keep saying. Just, you know, and I I have become more appreciative of things, just nature, um, the world as it is. I accept wholeheartedly that God created this perfect planet with everything that we need. He doesn't have to babysit us. (laughs) We have literally everything we need. You know, we can either thrive or barely survive. And it's sad that people are barely surviving, you know, if they would just put their trust in the Lord. And, and this has been my case for the last two years is I literally I mean, there are there have been multiple times that I felt like I was at des- desperate, you know, desperate state and things have just worked out for me. So I know without question, the Lord is with me. You know, he will help me through this next stage or the remaining years of my life. And I hope that in doing that, I leave a positive impression, right, on others, help lift them up, help pull them out of the hole they might be in. You know, I just as I hope people will be willing to hear my story, I'm more than happy to sit down and hear someone else's story as well. And I feel I'm a very empathetic person. Uh, In fact, my patriarchal blessing tells me that I will have the gift of discernment. That's one of the things that I've come to realize that I have. I can look at someone and feel like I'm looking at their heart. (laughs) I'm feeling it even before they start talking. And as they start talking, things are revealed to me. And I accept wholeheartedly that is a gift that I have. So explore the gifts that you feel you've been given and know that you have been given gifts. We're all unique in that regard. And um, we can all benefit one another. We just have to be willing to be open. And I will actually say not just open, but I think the key is to be vulnerable. A willingness to be vulnerable will melt hearts. And allow the power of the spirit to penetrate even the hardest, (laughs) hardest heart. Thank you, Rochelle. I wrote down what you said. The willingness to be vulnerable will melt hearts. I really believe that. It takes courage. Um, Listeners, just so grateful for Rochelle, for her courage to be on the podcast. Um, If you're feeling gender dysphoria, I think you've got to write your own story. I talk about this a lot, is listen to Rochelle's story. Um, I think it's good to listen to trans people's stories, but at the end of the day, um, you've got to write your own story and it, it's got to look the way that you want to own it, that you feel you fully own it versus responding to someone else's story. Or sometimes society says, this is the way you do it to be fully authentic or live your truth. And I think you've got to live your truth based on the personal revelation you're receiving. One of the things Rochelle talks about over and over again is her relationship with the savior and trusting in the Lord and I think that's such an important thing in the receiving personal revelation. And and I always invite people to go slow in this space. Um, write your own story where you're, you know, in a place that you can make these decisions as a position of strength. Um, it's unique to everybody. If you're really in a deep, dark spot, suicidal, you've got to write your own story quicker. 
you've got to sort of address this sooner versus um, other stories. But um, you've got to write this and own it your way. Because just like I can tell, Rochelle totally owns her story and is doing it her way. If you're feeling gender dysphoria, you've got to do it your way. And um, and hopefully we just love you and support you as it outlines in the church's website. And some of those elements of transition butt up against church teachings and some are okay. And you can go to the handbook to sort of figure that out. Church is pretty upfront and you would know that very well, Rochelle. So thank you, Rochelle, for being on the podcast. Um, got a great heart, got a great life ahead of you. and. Um, thank you, our listeners, for listening. So this is Rochelle and Richard Osler signing off another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love. Mm-hmm.